it really wasn't a climate justice plan. We weren't calling it that until the very end. You know, we were thinking, all right, we're going to do this climate action plan with an equity lens. And then as we were towards the end, looking at it, it was like, oh, this is, this is a climate justice plan. That's what this is. Providence, Rhode Island is one of dozens of U.S. cities trying to address energy and climate issues locally with a goal of 100% carbon-free electricity, 30% generated locally by 2050. But unlike most cities, their recently created climate justice plan talks deliberately about energy democracy. In this episode, the city's director of sustainability, Leah Bamberger, explains how their plan was built from the bottom up through a process of intentional community engagement and that the needs of the city's residents led to a plan with a much stronger focus on health and livelihood than a traditional climate action plan. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is our special Voices of 100 series focused on local leaders and their pursuit of 100% renewable energy. It's all a part of Local Energy Rules, a bi-weekly podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. So yeah, welcome to the program. It's so great to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. I wanted to start by just asking you about this climate justice plan, about a particular phrase in it that I think really gets at the heart of all the way that this differs from the way that other cities are thinking about their climate action plans. Uh, And it says, quote, this plan takes a systems thinking and place-based approach to addressing climate change. How do you feel like that is different from climate plans that there might be being adopted in other U.S. cities? And how did it change the desired outcomes from the plan from just getting beyond like a certain carbon emissions target? Yeah, well, I think what really made this plan and makes this plan unique is is our approach to developing it. And we often talk about in sustainability the need to focus on equity. And one thing that I have learned through this process, and this sounds like a no-brainer, but uh, it, it really takes, it took a while to sink in, which is if we want different outcomes, we have to take a different approach. And so when we talk about equity and we, we want equitable outcomes, adding, you know, a section on equity or, you know, shifting the makeup, getting a more diverse constituent base is not going to result in a whole system shift or, you know, a, a completely different set of outcomes. And so what we did is we really flipped our engagement process on its head uh, when we developed this plan. So we knew if we were to put out a broad call to, hey, we're developing our climate action plan, we want to center equity in it, we're going to make sure that's emphasized in the process, and we had that big public meeting, we would get mostly the usual suspects and the voices that we were really trying to center um, from our frontline communities, our communities that are most impacted by the climate crisis, they would continue to be marginalized. So uh, we, instead, we had a very intentional process that sought to engage specifically and pretty much exclusively our frontline community members so that the solutions that are developed in the plan are addressing their needs and they're not uh, continuing to be marginalized in that way in the process. So as a result, it takes a systems thinking and place-based approach to, to that quote really getting at some of the root causes. So when we center equity, when we when we center frontline communities in these conversations, we're not only talking about carbon pollution, but we're talking about labor, we're talking about health, we're talking about gentrification, housing affordability, and that's where we really get at the 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 systems level thinking. All those things are interconnected. Uh, and it's particularly exciting doing this work here in Providence because Providence uh, was really the birthplace of the industrial revolution. 
all of the, the challenges that we're facing today, many of them started right here in our backyard. Uh, and it not only started with, you know, the mills and, and the industry coming in, which ended up, you know, running on fossil fuels and, and needing the uh, larger labor force. And but it also started with, uh, you know, these were mills that were relying on cotton from the south that was extracted via slave labor. And that just really gets at the narrative of how all these things are connected. So when we're talking about tackling climate change, we can't just be talking about calculating greenhouse gas emissions and our carbon footprint and wedging our way down to zero. We have to be really thinking about the systems and structures that created this crisis in the first place. And that's what I think this plan gets at. Not because that was necessarily our intention. Our intention was to center frontline communities in the conversation. But because we did that, we ended up with a much more holistic approach and plan. And I should just for the benefit of folks who don't live in this space a little bit more, in terms of frontline communities in the climate justice plan, it talked about how you have an active port, for example, and that there's a lot of pollution near there. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Is people who live near that? Could you give a couple of specific examples to help people understand a little bit more about what we mean when we say frontline communities? Yeah, I can give the specific definition uh, that's in the plan. But generally, we say frontline communities. These are the people who are, are literally on the front lines of the climate crisis. So these are folks who are not only dealing with the impacts of industry today, so that could be the health impacts, it could be labor impacts, maybe they are, are working in industry and are exposed to processes and, and the impacts and the pollution as a, as a laborer or they live near these polluting facilities um, and they're dealing with it in the everyday kind of community health. These frontline communities in Providence and around the world are low-income communities of color. So in our plan, we have a definition that we develop with our community members for frontline communities. And these are communities of color most impacted by the crisis of ecology, economy, and democracy. And in Providence, these generally include our indigenous, African-American, Black, Latinx, and Southeast Asian communities. We also say there's a particular emphasis on people of color who are refugees and immigrants, people with criminal records, those who speak languages other than English, LBTQIA plus individuals. Yeah, so that's that's how we collectively uh, and collaboratively define frontline communities for Providence. I think it's unique every every place. And I think it's really important that there is a process to define what they are in, in each community uh, so they can be identified appropriately. That's really helpful. I think that when I think about the different communities that we've spoken to, some are large urban places, some are smaller cities, some are suburbs. And it's really helpful to think that that answering this question is different for each community and that it's not appropriate to just think of like, oh, well, this is the folks that are defined as frontline in Providence. And so therefore, we should look for those same folks in our community. So I think that's very helpful. Yeah. And I just to add to that, I think that gets to the other piece of, of the quote that you referenced in terms of place-based approach. And I think that's really important to consider that this work has to be developed in a place-based context in order to embrace those principles of equity and justice, that there is no one-size solution that, you know, works everywhere and you government needs to be in that collaborative decision-making process with community, with their specifics and nuances of those communities in order to come up with equitable solutions. 
So there's a really strong focus in the climate justice plan on co-pollutants. So this is like particulate matter, nitrogen oxides, basically a lot of the components that we think of as smog or, or local air pollution. Why is there such an important focus on that when the global climate challenge is about greenhouse gas emissions, particularly carbon dioxide? Yeah, so this focus really evolved again from our process and some of the things that we heard and the challenges that not only we heard from community members, but we see in data, right? We look at asthma rates in the city and how those disproportionately impact frontline community members. And as we try to, as we're, you know, working to address the global climate crisis here in Providence, I think it's important to remember that, you know, Providence, we could become carbon neutral tomorrow and it's not going to it's a drop in the bucket in terms of global emissions, which is not to undermine our impact or say we shouldn't care about these issues. I think there's obviously, you know, cities around the world are, are taking action and that is really important as a driver of change. But I think that what we're trying to do here is, is kind of think of it rather than an either or, but a both and. So we can solve for the health crises that are um, a product of climate change as we reduce greenhouse gas emissions if we make both a priority. And what we're saying here in Providence is like, yes, we want to reduce emissions, but let's start with the emissions that are causing the most harm in our frontline communities so we can prioritize their health as a first step in meeting our long-term greenhouse gas reduction goals. Maybe this is sort of like an obvious question, but I assume that there's some relationship here, too, when you are trying to solve the pollutant crisis that is impacting the health of communities. You're probably also going to be addressing pollution sources that are releasing greenhouse gas emissions. Absolutely. And they're often the more challenging sources of emissions. And we're saying we're going to not start with the low-hanging fruit, essentially. We're going to make sure we're focusing on these more challenging, like transportation emissions, highways direct emissions from industry, and those are the emissions that we're saying are important, we could get to maybe 30% of our goals just by talking about energy efficiency and fuel switching, but that's not going to help frontline communities. That's not going to address the asthma crisis that is happening in this city and many other cities around the country and in frontline communities. So by emphasizing the community health and those co-pollutants, it does shift our strategies and what we're what we're focusing on initially. That's fascinating, especially since, and I feel like in so many of these cases, when we prioritize energy beyond any other way that we address this issue, we start with energy efficiency as like the opening piece of the plan. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how the Climate Justice Plan was developed. You've kind of alluded to this already, but there was a series of interviews with Providence residents that was focused in frontline communities, which I think we've defined pretty well at this point. What did you learn about in terms of what was important to the community? And, and how does that align with the climate goal? I'm kind of restating a question that I think we've already sort of answered, but I'm hoping to kind of condense it here in, in one piece. Sure. So our process in the engagement and getting input from frontline communities, we tried to make it as relatable and digestible as possible. So it started with training program for communities to learn about our energy system and energy democracy. And then they went out into their communities and asked very simple questions. How did you stay warm in the winter? What was good about it? What would you change? How did you stay cool in the summer? What was good about that? What would you change? How do you get around the city? What's good about that? What would you change? I mean, those right there are the major buckets of emissions, right? Mm -hmm. And then we also ask the question about, is there anything in your community that's making you sick? 
And what we heard from that that I think was illuminating to me personally is just some of the basic challenges that so many people in our community are experiencing related to these systems that if we took a traditional approach and had that big public meeting with environmental organizations, we wouldn't hear any of those challenges. We'd hear about the need for electric vehicles and the need for more solar programs. We wouldn't hear those root issues, things like, hey, my radiators are broken and I can't get my landlord to fix them. I'm battling with the utility company because they're shutting off my heat because I can't afford it. I I can't close my windows because my building is so old and, and in disrepair. So core housing issues certainly came up a lot. And just understanding how those challenges that are so many people in our communities are experiencing, if we're not addressing those, as part of this fight of tackling the climate crisis, we are absolutely excluding people from being part of the solution. So if we're not, you know, broadening the tent and we're not thinking about these challenges of just basic needs of staying cool and warm and comfortable in your home and taking care of your family, we're of course not going to be able to include those perspectives and have any meaningful progress in sort of diversifying and, and, and meeting our diversity, equity, and inclusion goals of the sort of environmental field and sustainability field, that is such a a challenge. Not only is it a challenge, it's something that there's been a lot of talk about the need for and how, you know, it's all really important. We value diversity. How do we get there? We actually have to shift, and this is what I was getting to earlier about, you know, this sort of obvious learning moment for me that we actually have to change what we're doing if we want different outcomes, and we need to start being inclusive of these really basic needs that so many people are are experiencing. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our Voices of 100 interview by asking how folks in Providence defined energy democracy, how the role of the community led to some unexpected goals in the climate plan, and talk with Leah about why other cities shouldn't just try to copy and paste ideas from the Providence Climate Justice Plan. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan, and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. So I feel like this gets at this idea of inclusivity, but you know, the term energy democracy has come up both in the Climate Justice Plan, you've mentioned it a couple of times already today. What does it mean to you, or how do you and, and folks in Providence define it, and how is it going to be incorporated in the work of implementing the Climate Justice Plan? Yeah, so the the plan defines energy democracy as representing a shift from the corporate 
decentralized fossil fuel economy to one that is governed by communities, is on the principle of no harm to the environment, supports local economies, and contributes to the health and well-being for all people. And I think in terms of how this plan seeks to embody it through implementation and how we're going to continue to work towards that, I mean, it is a energy democracy is you're never there, right? It's kind of like sustainability, like you can always be better. So it's always this like lofty end goal framework that you keep in mind as you're making decisions. So when we're thinking about programs like community choice aggregation, how do we challenge the status quo of what community choice aggregation is as a program to think about working towards energy democracy? So it's not necessarily going to be the the end-all be-all solution to a more democratic system, but we can make shifts in it that will help us get there. So recognizing that community choice aggregation is largely just a shift of one power source to a more stable, cleaner source, but we can design that program to embody some principles of energy democracy. So making sure there is there a way to use a community choice aggregation program to work towards more equitable rate structures? Can we incorporate funding or maybe add-on charges for certain rate classes based on income that can fuel programs for low-income residents or can fuel more energy efficiency programs that are better suited to for renters, something that the utility programs have struggled with? So just thinking creatively about things like that. And I, I also think just the process as well can help shift towards energy democracy. So in developing a community choice aggregation program, are we being inclusive? Are we really shifting decision power to communities and and developing what that program looks like? So I think all those are just, I use community choice aggregation as an example because I assume many of your listeners probably are familiar with that as a way of of meeting our, our climate goals and, you know, just recognizing that it's sort of, thought of as a, as a process and not necessarily something that you can like check the box on. Like, all right, now we're, our energy system is democratic, right? It's, it's more of a, a framework for thinking about how we shift. I think that's really helpful. I like that a lot just because it's really hard for communities to understand about that process that it's not just like, hey, if we adopt this policy, we've done it. We're actually just going to be releasing a report on community choice aggregation very soon. And it is telling stories of a lot of different communities and and what they're trying to do. And I think this is a wonderful way to think about that because at its core, community choice aggregation, like you said, is just this notion of, hey, the city sort of takes over the purchasing power for a city in terms of where it gets electricity from. And yet there are all these communities now exploring a variety of different things. Maybe it's getting more energy from local sources. Maybe it's focusing on high quality labor and jobs for the clean energy that gets built. There are, I think, at least a handful, half a dozen of communities that have community advisory boards that are helping to shape the policy development of community choice. So I think that's really helpful for folks to hear that it's not just like, hey, if we write this plan in the right way, we've done energy democracy, but actually, you know, it's a continual process of thinking about it. Absolutely. There are some fairly obvious aims of the climate justice plan, you know, targeting clean energy improvements to frontline communities. But you also talk about some non-traditional goals that I think are really worth mentioning. How do you see as things like eliminating utility shutoffs for non-payment or aiming to reduce direct emissions in frontline communities or even advancing energy democracy, help helping Providence move toward that overall net zero by 2050 goal? Yeah, these are all other things you mentioned, you know, eliminating utility shutoffs and 
aiming to reduce direct emissions are two examples of, of ways that the city was really pushed in this process. And I think initially it was like, oh, we don't control that. It's, that's going to be challenging to do. Uh, but the reality is like there's so much of this work that is outside of our control and that we have to think creatively about how to get there. So I, I certainly give a lot of credit to the leadership in the city for embracing this and, and, and being open to including these sorts of goals and targets in our in our climate justice plan. And in terms of how they will help us move towards our net zero goal, I think that, again, part of this, you know, need for the environmental work to diversify and and be more open and inclusive, I think these sorts of strategies are critical for getting there. Not only the demographics in this country are changing, right? We need a broader base in order to effectively come up with solutions and and move the needle here, both, you know, politically, I think that's a big part of it. But it's not just about um, building the base. I think it's also in order to actually get at the root causes of these problems, we need to stop thinking about just these sort of numerical qualitative goals like net zero. We have to actually be thinking about shifting the structures and systems so that, you know, we could be net zero but if we still have, you know, there's so many nuances that I think people are quick to criticize solar in some cases because of the, the rare minerals that are needed to produce the panels and the batteries and such. And where are those coming from and how are they being extracted and what are the labor practices and is that really any better? So we definitely don't want to just shift from one extractive economy that is fossil fuel based to another extractive economy that is some other unsustainable practice. And so I think by kind of addressing some of these holistic solutions that continue to challenge the way we make decisions to be more inclusive so that we're shifting away from one small group of people continually making decisions on behalf of a larger group of people that ends up marginalizing certain certain groups over and over again. I mean, that is what leads to the sort of extraction of, of labor and resources that is very unsustainable. But if we have those those people on the front lines apart, whether that means they're on the front lines of building solar panels or mining the minerals for batteries, they're part of the decision-making process that will have a much more inclusive sense of the impacts of what we're doing and not a false sense of feeling good about being zero energy or, or net zero. In terms of one of the components of the, or the goals in the plan, or at least in terms of Providence's goal about carbon-free electricity, there was this particular goal about 30% local energy generation, which I feel like I'm obliged as the host of a podcast called Local Energy Rules to ask about. And I was curious if that was something that <laughs> bubbled up from the process of the climate justice plan as something that people talked about, or if that was something that the city had already been thinking about going into this. Like, Where did that particular goal come from? That came from, so we worked with Acadia Center, a regional kind of think tank nonprofit here in the Northeast that does a lot of work around energy systems and climate. And they did our modeling and they also helped come up with an initial set of targets and policy solutions to get to our goals. So they're more kind of on the analytical side of things and they proposed a 30% local generation as a really important piece of of our objectives here and making sure that, again, we're shifting towards more local control 
in the principles of energy democracy. And that concept was quickly embraced by our community partners um, and making sure that this is having co-benefits of job creation and especially for Rhode Island where we don't generate any energy. Well, we do now as we're starting to shift towards wind and solar, but we don't have any other traditional resources. There are no mines. We have no natural gas supplies here. You know, it's all right now, it's mostly relying on imported fuels and generation. So that shift to local production will help keep, whether it's the profits from that or the the jobs, et cetera, all of that, keep that in our local economy is really important. Yeah, through this whole process, I feel like you must have learned so much. And I was curious, what advice would you have for other cities as they are either developing or maybe revising their climate action plans? And maybe what's one thing in particular about what Providence has done that they should definitely emulate? Sure. I think it's, you know, I'm part of an organization called the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, and we share lessons learned and best practices all the time and support one another in, in various cities. And and this work in particular, I mean, I, I kind of get asked this a lot. And I think that one thing that sort of makes me hesitate about this question is I do think that this plan is such a departure from this model of of learning from each other on a city-to-city basis where it's like, all right, you thought of a really cool policy in Harvard, Connecticut. We're going to pick that up here and do it in Providence. And sometimes, you know, that works, right? We've seen that happen to a certain extent with like classic bag bands as a policy that is really just like taken over and, and translated from community to community. But they're different every everywhere and they each have their own process of coming into being. But I think what I've learned from this is that having those relationships with the community to do this work was so important as a starting point. And this work began with a whole, you know, equity and sustainability initiative that helped create those relationships and helped establish our partnership as really following the leadership of frontline communities. And for me and for this work coming into this plan, it really wasn't a climate justice plan. We weren't calling it that until the very end. You know, we were thinking, all right, we're going to do this climate action plan with an equity lens. And then as we were towards the end, looking at it, it was like, oh, this is this is a climate justice plan. That's what this is. And that openness, I think, is really important. So I guess my advice would be, like, be open to the process and trust the process. And I, I do think it's really important that you're not going into this with an idea of what the outcomes are going to be, but you're going into it from a local government perspective. You're going into it with, hey, I'm going to go talk to a community and I'm going to hear about their concerns related to these systems. And we're going to develop strategies that actually address those concerns, not necessarily strategies that I have already in the back of my mind or that I've learned that, you know, New York and Seattle are doing and, and are making headlines there but really being responsive to what, what you hear and letting community lead in that way and, and, and truly sharing the decision-making power with them. I want to ask you one last specific question about that. There was a committee, I think it was called, that really seemed to be significantly involved in the development of the plan. Could you just explain what that is really quick? Because I think it puts a little bit of structure on this really important point about process. Sure. Yeah, the Racial and Environmental Justice Committee was created in beginning in 2016. 
And it's a group of 10 frontline community members from Providence who are really in steering committee for this work. Uh, they created the framework for how our office should be thinking about equity and how we should be approaching this in our work. We uh, adopted that framework and now use that to guide this work going forward and really everything that we do in our office. And they have a very intentional structure of, you know, they have their 10 members that represent different sort of sectors, I would say, I guess, of, of our frontline communities. So there's a youth seat, there's a racial justice seat, there's a South Providence, actually two South Providence seats, which are kind of near, near port, near industry communities. And each of those members has a responsibility to go back into their community and be talking about their these issues and whatever the committee is working on, um, be talking about those with their base. So it's a very kind of that deep democracy model and thinking about and building that capacity for bringing more people into these conversations and um, broadening that that base. Well, Leah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about Providence's climate justice plan. I am really impressed with the work that has gone into it. It's a terrific document. We'll post a link to it as on the show page, but I uh, really appreciate in particular your admonition to folks of don't try to copy and paste from this plan, but rather think <laughs> about the process. So thank you again. Absolutely. Thanks, John. Really great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our Voices of 100% podcast series with Providence, Rhode Island Director of Sustainability, Leah Bamberger. Check out the show page for links to the city's climate justice plan and our new report on community choice energy. To learn about other cities pursuing 100% renewable energy, check out our 12 additional Voices of 100% interviews, including leaders in Madison, Wisconsin, Cleveland, Ohio, or even Abita Springs, Louisiana. Also on the website of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, you can find the entire list of 100% cities on our community power map and click through an interactive community power toolkit for stories on how cities have advanced toward their goals. Tune back into Local Energy Rules every two weeks to hear more powerful stories of communities taking on concentrated power to transform the energy system. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.